Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens, international business attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment and suggest future topics and guests. Today, it is my real pleasure to welcome Federico de Jesus to the podcast. Federico is the founder and principal of FDJ Solutions. And more importantly, he's a, he's a good friend, and we've been friends for a long time. Fede, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Fred, and uh, appreciate and I'm honored for the invitation. So there's a lot to talk about. Your career has so many milestones that, that, that I want to delve into. Let's set the scene by having you tell us the basics about, about who you are, where you come from, take us up to your time at American U in D.C. Sure. So, like you said, our histories are intertwined and uh, we are great friends. Uh, I was born and raised in, in Puerto Rico, went to, to Catholic school, uh, was very involved in, in, uh, in theater club and Model UN, which is where, where we met. Uh, and in the Model UN, I, I got the, the privilege to, to compete in, in Washington, D.C. And, and had a flavor of, of the town and uh, decided that this is where I wanted to, to be and, and to, to study here, uh, work in politics and be in the center of international affairs. And so um, after a couple of internships in San Juan City Hall and in a few companies, uh, I, I came to DC after my first two years of college in, in St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. I transferred to American, not just because it was in DC, but because it had a program that I thought was very unique and uh, tailored to to my um, my skill set and what I wanted to learn, which was a program called CLEG. It was uh, communications, legal institutions, economics, and government. Um, and so I found it to be a lot more practical. I started uh, with political science, and you know, reading about the Docville and and democracy is is very interesting, but it doesn't actually give you any skill sets um, other than how to order nicely in a McDonald's. Um, and so I, I found out that, you know, learning how to write a press release and learning about economics, learning the fundamentals of, of the way that politics actually works uh, was, was, a lot, uh, was a lot better than, than studying philosophy, which, again, I loved, but it didn't really give me any practical skill sets. Um, and so being in D.C., uh, you learn a lot on the job more than in, in the books. But when you have the unique situation of combining people that uh, have done the job um, teaching you while you're actually doing uh, an internship or a part-time job on the Hill, um, that, that was really what, what set me on, on the course where, 
where I was at. And in my last semester uh, at AU, I, I did a part-time with uh, uh, the delegate from Puerto Rico, which has a four-year term but doesn't vote in, in, in Congress. So I'll stop there um, because that's kind of where you wanted me to let, leave it off, I guess. <laughs> Sure. And and looking at your, your bio, you know, one of, one of the great things about the podcast is I get to learn so much about our guests, including people that, that I've known for, for many years. But I, I didn't know this about you. You, you actually had a, a project involving Hungary. Tell us about that. Yeah. So in my master's uh, program, after more than a decade in government, I decided to go back to school, did a master's in social enterprise at American University, uh, Professor Robert Tomasco leads the program, um, and it's an MA, and it, it was really practical because you learn basically how to be a consultant for a social enterprise, which could be a nonprofit or it could be a for-profit um, with a social mission. And uh, my capstone project was basically a consultancy for the government of Hungary's National Innovation Office, specifically um, Kickstarter and all of those platforms had just started and there was a law passed in the United States actually allowing for for-profit uh, crowd, crowdsourcing um, or crowdfunding rather. And so Hungary was at the, at the edge of trying to, to lower entrepreneurs um, in what later became unfortunately a very autocratic uh, atmosphere at the time. Um, it was a little bit more murky. So basically, I got to travel to Hungary a couple of times. I led a, a student uh, team of consultants, and we basically uh, did research and uh, on-site uh, investigations and wound up giving them uh, recommendations as to what the policy landscape should be for Hungary to take advantage of uh, for-profit uh, crowdfunding, and and that was that was really interesting. Comparing, you know, the atmosphere of a post-communist, post-socialist um, environment, but also with the new tendency of Russia trying to recolonize a lot of its former satellite uh, nations. So it was a fascinating experience. So moving on to your your work experience, um, one of the big blocks of your of your fascinating career is, of course, your your time. Uh, working on, on on Capitol Hill, please tell us about about that experience. You worked with with some very important names while while you were there, but at the same time, you you, you had the opportunity to work both in the House and Senate, right? Giving you just a, an incredible perspective on, on on the legislative process. So so please tell us about 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 that experience. How did you get into that? Take us through your your trajectory up in the Hill. Sure. So, yeah, and I, I do have those fun memories, uh, you know, going to receptions. I remember one we went to a, a Greek Orthodox um, reception, and I, I think we met like the, the Greek Orthodox Pope or, or something like that. So, yeah, being in D.C., not just on Capitol Hill, but just the the, the atmosphere here, I would have to say pre-pandemic, uh, very open. You could just walk into a member's uh, office on the Hill uh, receptions either from embassies or, or pressure groups or even inside Capitol Hill, which was something really shocking to me that, you know, like modern Rome, you had all of these uh, industry and trade associations basically rent rooms on Capitol Hill to feed free food to young and uh, cash-strapped staffers to influence them, and in a completely legal way. Um, and it's just part of the nature of, of how things run. My personal experience was after I had that part time with Puerto Rico's resident commissioner, which is like an elected ambassador, um, because, like I said, it doesn't have a vote, um, but it's elected uh, on the same ticket as the governor. 
and has a four-year term. All members of Congress have two-year terms. Is the only member of the House with a four-year term, um, and it's you know politically like is seen as the basically the vice president of Puerto Rico. It's kind of the second uh, highest political figure. Um, but I went off of the hill to you know graduate to to do work on on politics in Virginia for Mark Warner when he was running for governor, and I decided to go back to the hill. Uh, for a member that that I actually uh, met while I was working on the Hill part-time, uh, Elliot Engel uh, from New York, a lot of Puerto Ricans in his district. He visited Vieques, uh, an island that was being bombed by the U.S. Navy at the time for target practice, uh, a lot of disease and, and, and a tragedy there. And this guy uh, made it, uh, you know, to Vieques before it was fashionable. So we actually reconnected, and I worked with him for a year and a half. He wound up being the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee and uh, lost his election uh, in 2020, unfortunately, um, but was very involved in, in Middle East policy and, uh, and, in, and in Puerto Rico issues. So that was a fascinating experience, um, and it allowed me to learn quickly about the intersection of interest groups with, with legislation, how interns really are uh, glorified slaves. Unfortunately, they don't get paid. Now that's changed, uh, thank goodness, um, because they're very overworked. And in D.C., you can't have, it's one of those conundrums. They don't uh, give you a job if you don't have prior experience, but you don't get prior experience unless you're willing to work for free. Um, and unless you live in D.C. already or have rich parents, um, it's really hard to do. Um, so appreciating interns and all the work they do was was an important and valuable lesson because today's intern is tomorrow's chief of staff. And I saw that a lot on the Hill. Um, people in junior positions that escalated very quickly, very young people, very educated people, uh, overworked and underappreciated. Um, and I was one of them. And uh, after a couple of years, I, I got a chance to, to work for Nancy Pelosi, who some may have heard was the first female speaker. And that was the job of a lifetime. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. I was basically her um, press secretary for Hispanic media. And um, that was around the time when George W. Bush was president. The Iraq war was going on. Um, Anti-immigrant legislation started to creep up. So it was a very fascinating time. Um, and I did a, a similar job for Harry Reid, as you alluded to, in the Senate, um, right before Democrats took over the majority in 2006. So I got a chance to be in the minority, which obviously isn't the best, um, but you get to, to be in the opposition. And when you're in the majority, obviously, then you need to actually deliver. And that's a whole different type of, uh, of environment. So that's kind of how I cut my teeth on the Hill. Um, and I'll pause there because I know you probably have a bunch of questions. I'm looking at your your, your bio again, and you, you mentioned uh, your participation in one of the congressional delegations, a, a CODEL. And I just want to touch on that briefly. I, when I was in, in the Foreign Service, I had to deal with, with CODELs. Uh, I was on the receiving end of them. Although, to be honest, uh, at my relatively obscure post, we, we didn't really get that many codels. It was usually the the staff that would that would go visit. But I, I I know what it's like to be on the on the other side. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience of, of participating in a in a congressional delegation? That was fascinating. First of all, it was bipartisan. Most um, foreign trips by members of Congress um, include members of both parties. It was uh, Reed's first trip as majority leader um, outside U.S. soil, and he made it a point that his first visit wanted, he wanted it to be in South America. Um, and so we went to uh, Paraguay, where we met the president, Nicanor Duarte, um, fascinating individual, 
basically in, a, in the middle of, of a meeting with high-ranking U.S. senators from both parties, including the majority leader, he said that Paraguay had the best marijuana in the world. And everybody in the room wondered, well, how can this guy be so confident that that's the case? Um, he went on to say that that was one of the biggest industries in the in the country. Mind you, this was before Uruguay legalized marijuana, which was the first country to do so. So this was an illegal trade. And Paraguay, I think, got money from the United States to combat narco trafficking. So that was a fascinating individual who was basically, remember, this was 2007. So Hugo Chavez was still alive. The United States was grappling with, you know, a rise in, in anti-American leftism in the United States, in, in Latin America. And this guy was telling us, look, you guys need to forget about what Chavez is doing and, and you need to concentrate on what the United States isn't doing and should do. So even though he was a funny character, um, he actually had some valuable lessons to teach. And he was very blunt about it, too. He said, look, Fidel Castro sends a dentist, or the Castros do. Um, they're not the best dentists in the world. But if somebody asks me if the Castros are dictators, I'm going to tell them, of course not. What are you talking about? These generous, solidarious people. Um, now, if the United States were to send us doctors, the next day I'll, I'll denounce Fidel Castro as the worst dictator Latin America has ever seen. <laughs> and, and he wasn't kidding. Um, so that was a very interesting behind the scenes um, view of how South American and, and American politicians interact. But also, like you said, the State Department people, uh, the selfless, patriotic people um, that briefed the senators, that, you know, arranged the meetings, the logistics. Um, those were the folks that, that uh, really sacrificed for these trips. Now, some people think that these trips are, you know, uh, boondoggles so that you can go shopping. Let me tell you, man, we, I had to wake up at 4.30 or 5 in the morning every day to brief senators on the news. We were up in a bus at 7 or 8 in the morning all day and evening long in meetings. Um, and so th these are, are, are very grueling uh, trips where uh, you meet social uh, activists, you meet uh, people that are doing USAID projects, you meet obviously in-country legislators and other actors, and, and it's a very fascinating environment. Also to, to go into the classified briefings and, and, and know what is being said in the embassies um, as opposed to what you know, you're, you're actually reading in the press is also fascinating. Um, so that, that was a, an interesting experience. We wound up going to Colombia in the middle of uh, Hugo Chavez and, um, and the Colombian government's uh, fight with, with diplomacy in the region. Um, president Uribe was uh, still president of Colombia at the time, and the free trade agreement was being negotiated. Um, and we, we ended up in Mexico and, and, and Colombia um, back when Calderón in Mexico started the, the, the drug war that, that we have uh, until today and comparing Colombia, which at the time was still not sure, uh, you know, what the, the peace process was going to deliver or, or whether Plan Colombia was going to deliver. I know I'm going off on a rant, but it was a very fascinating time to be in those countries. I appreciate it. I'm going to to follow this this line. You brought up this issue of the level of U.S. involvement in the region has and how that is perceived. But all the while, the, the world doesn't stop. As you know, I spent a, a lot of time in China and this neglect, which um, was always problematic at, at, at a, uh, in, in some way, but now there's a, another dimension to it, which is that uh, to the extent that the U.S. is not involved in, in Latin America, it is opening spaces for for others, in particular the Chinese, to, to to fill that gap. You know, in the same way that the Cubans, with with their 
um, for example, with their medical missions in the same way that they've been able to, to exploit those opportunities. Now the Chinese are, are coming in in a, in a, in a bigger way, arguably they're, they're not sending medical teams, but they're investing and, and they're helping countries with, with infrastructure projects and, and so on. So what are your, your, your views on, on this issue generally? I mean, what should the U.S. be doing in, in Latin America? Is there really a, a way to change course? What are your perspectives on this? Sure. So thanks for, for the great setup. Uh, I, I do follow, obviously, these issues closely. Um, in fact, the other day, uh, you know, thinking about the U.S. role in the region, I, I was recalling um, remarks that the President Obama made at the beginning of his term when we had a, an issue with President Manuel Zelaya, who was deposed um, in Honduras. And the whole hemisphere was up in arms because they were saying we can't validate um, the old military coup style uh, way of, of doing things anymore. And at the time, the United States at the beginning um, said that they wouldn't recognize the new government in, in Honduras. And at the end, uh, I remember Tom Shannon, the assistant secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs, he basically decided to um, convince the administration that we needed to move forward and ditch the whole Celaya movement. And when the administration was criticized, Obama said, well, look, you guys are obviously all, always criticizing U.S. intervention in the region. And then when we decide not to intervene, you're also criticizing us. So I get that. But it's just that the fact that in politics, as in life, uh, voids are filled. And so you have China, as you mentioned, in Argentina uh, doing you know, what looks to be maybe space exploration or, or some sort of, you know, uh, scientific research. It could be military, it could not be. And, you know, China does invest in infrastructure, but they bring in their own brick mortar and, and workers. So how much of that actually benefits the country? That's, a, that's an opportunity for the United States. Uh, you mentioned that the world doesn't stop. And so the United States might be looking at what do we do after leaving Afghanistan? Um, what's the new role for NATO? Um, what's going on, obviously, in the Asia-Pacific. Uh, but if you don't look at your backyard, um, then you're going to have situations like Iran and, and China and Russia running amok in Venezuela, um, and a lot of countries basically not not looking at how to cooperate with the United States in mutual or mutually beneficial projects. So, for example, there's a Haitian crisis, there's a border crisis, and unless the United States actually invests in the infrastructure and in the social needs of these countries – there's still going to be border and refugee crisis. And sometimes politicians in Washington wonder, well, how did this come about or where did this come from? Well, decades of neglecting Latin America sure helps. And this doesn't necessarily mean that U.S. policy towards the region and the hemisphere needs to replicate the paternalism or, frankly, imperialism of the Cold War. On the contrary, I think that there are a lot of things that the U.S. could do that's mutually beneficial. For example, like I said, investing in infrastructure could be a two-way street, not just to create jobs, in Latin America, um, and also investment opportunities for Americans, but again, mutually beneficial ways to get more security into the region um, and not necessarily more dependency on U.S. security assistance, um, which frankly hasn't panned out. I'm, I'm frankly surprised um, of the role that Mexico is playing under what we, a lot of people thought would be a Mexican-style uh, version of Hugo Chavez, and it's wound up being more similar to a Trumpian a transactional type of uh, flirting with autocracy in Mexico, while at the same time, obviously, helping poor people who were neglected in that country. And why do I mention Mexico? Because Mexico, you know, has a talks a good game. The president 
uh, again, seemed like a traditional 1980s type leftist. But he basically cowed down to Donald Trump and allowed Mexico to become the U.S. enforcer on their side of the border against Central American refugees and are basically violating probably international law by prohibiting people from actually seeking asylum at a U.S. checkpoint. So I'm surprised at the role that Mexico has played. And frankly, Joe Biden hasn't actually changed a lot of the foreign policy that that uh, the Trump had, for example, on tariffs. The tariff war with, with China actually hurt Latin America and could have actually pushed Latin America into Chinese arms um, commercially and, and politically. So, you know, it's not to say that Chinese investment is all bad. It's not. Um, but if, you do, if the United States wants, wants to compete, it can't just ignore uh, the region. And, and that, that's unfortunately what's what's been going on. And no matter how many, you know, border crises or, or other um, regional uh, trauma, um, you know, it's just hard to get the folks in D.C. to focus on on the backyard that is Latin America. Certainly a topic that, that we could keep discussing for, for the duration of the podcast, but I will make a bit of a hard turn. You brought up uh, President Obama in your last answer, you know, your, your time in the Obama administration, and not just in the administration, but but prior to that, you were involved with, uh, with the campaign as well. So tell us about how you became involved with the campaign in the first place. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there that, that would want one day to to get involved with campaigns. Tell us about the experience, right, of working on a presidential campaign, and then also about the experience of working as a political appointee in the government. Thanks for that. And, uh, you know, I I think that the Obama campaign was, was fascinating, not just because it was historic. Um, it, you know, there was a, a sense of there needed to be sea level change. And uh, that was the first time, at least, in my experience in, in U.S. politics that you saw celebrities, musicians and people that really weren't involved in politics before getting excited and, and getting involved and and um, and really having hope. Uh, those were dark years. You, you were here for many of them. Torture, war, uh, terrorism, uh, domestic uh, division and strife and and to have someone with the vision, with or organizing discipline and an actual chance of, of changing the way that the, the U.S. saw itself and the world was was fascinating. And so, you know, I've worked in other campaigns and usually you have to work your butt off to get people to support you. In this campaign, we had to fend off artists and celebrities that wanted to get involved because we, we didn't have the bandwidth for, for a lot of them. And actually, a funny story, and you being Puerto Rican, you'll appreciate this, I actually got in trouble with Willy Colon. And for those who don't know who Willy Colon is, Willy Colon is one of the the, the, the classic salsa stars from the Fania All-Stars in the 60s and 70s, uh, one of the best. And he wanted to endorse the campaign. And so one of his uh, reps, who's a friend of mine, I'm not going to mention names, reached out and said, hey, uh, Willy wants to get involved. Let's issue a joint press release. And I went up to my superiors and said, hey, this is a big deal. Salsa singer Willy Colon wants to endorse us. And they're like, look. Everybody and their mother wants to endorse us. We're not going to write a press release for every singer or celebrity that, that comes up. And I'm like, guys, if you want to do your own thing, I'll lift it up. But, you know, this is what my higher ups are saying. And they're like, oh, come on. And I'm like, guys, I can't do this for you. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, a week later, 
I, I got an email from my boss. Shakira wants to endorse us, write a press release and announce it to the world. <laughs> so then Willie Colon got upset because we sent out a press release endor- uh, about a Shakira endorsement. And I'm playing politics with musicians here. I'm like, guys, you know, it's Shakira. What, can, what, can, what, can, what, can, what do you want me to do here? Um, so that was the type of, you know, of things that you dealt with. But in reality, there were a lot of other hard times too. Uh, John McCain ran a great campaign. Uh, he was obviously a hero. Uh, Obama didn't have the experience. He had a funny name, like he said. And although there were a lot of uh, moments when we were scared that we were going to lose, you know, I think history was was on our side. And and just to have, you know, all of those hours of of not sleeping and working hard um, really paid off because you it felt that it wasn't just a campaign. It felt like I was on a mission and that we were all, you know, striving for for something higher. Um, and and that, that was what the Obama campaign was for a lot of us. I was fortunate enough to be his voice in the Latino community, in the Spanish language media. And that was also an opportunity for, for a lifetime to not just debate issues, but feel like I was, you know, mobilizing a community to defend itself after years of being attacked for, for our ethnicity. I like the way you put it, right? Sea level change, and I do remember those those years very clearly. I mean, those were those were my years in the in the government. Let's talk about the next building block in your career, which is your consulting work, building and running your own firm. Simply cannot be paralleled when you're working for for someone else. What motivated you to start your own firm, and and how has that process moved along? So that's a great question. Um, so I, I just so folks realize where how do I came to that so after uh, the Obama campaign and, and I neglected to answer a very basic question so how did I get to the Obama campaign and into the Obama administration um, it was really a weird mix of a lot of interest and recruitment so I, I didn't make a secret that that I was for President Obama I had to be careful because Harry Reid was neutral both Senator Clinton and Senator Obama and before that Senator Edwards were part of the Democratic Party, right? So the Senate Majority Leader wanted to be careful and not, you know, play favorites. So I also had to be careful as his spokesman not to play favorites. So, uh, but you know, again, I I, I work with the people that that I knew were close to the pre- to then Senator Obama, and I just got recruited. And uh, the same happened for the administration. I worked in the transition, and uh, you know, they they asked me what I was interested in, and they decided, look. It's going to be a historic time for infrastructure investment. We want you to go to the Department of Transportation. And I'm like, you guys realize that that I don't know anything about transportation. No, but you know how to speak Spanish and you know about government and it'll be fine. <laughs> so it doesn't always pan out. It doesn't always, you know, it's not always a cookie cutter. You submit your resume, you get a bunch of interviews. I got a call from the White House saying that's where you're going to go and that's where I went. Um, and so there really wasn't a path or a, or a magic formula when you're riding the wave of what you're passionate about and you work hard and uh, you don't make no bones about it and you're smart about it. That's kind of how you get in the wave where the actual wave breaks. Uh, that's a different story. And you don't always know. Um, but being in, inside and, and working hard, that, that's the secret um, and not really being shy about it either. Um, there's a very fine line between arrogance and riskiness and arrogance is very frowned upon as it should be um but risk is always rewarded if done right and 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 that would be the the two cents that i would have to to say about that so sorry for not uh answering that question earlier and to your to your point as as to the entrepreneurship i really never saw myself as an entrepreneur i always thought i was going to be a career government 
person or at least a political person, didn't really care for the private sector. Uh, when I went into this master's on social enterprise, I just wanted to do something different and have a different skill set. Um, but after 14 years in government, both uh, in the federal government and then four years, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, two and a half years working for the government of Puerto Rico in D.C., um, I decided that I needed I needed a change. Um, and I quickly realized that advocacy from the outside is just as important as what you do inside, on the inside. And so being an entrepreneur is just, in my view, or in the work that I do, just another vehicle for the ends that, that I want to work for. So I do, I mostly have impact-driven clients. Um, it allows me to actually make a living while I do political commentating, which is something that I enjoy very much. Um, and it also allowed me to bring the social activism in me um, and innovation and marry them in a way that you can do in government, right? Because um, recognizably, you have a lot of other strictures and, and, and rules to follow where in the private sector, you can dabble into politics and in government and and uh, in civil society and not have the same uh, constraints. And so I basically decided that the way that I could be the best uh, activist and the most impact I could have is to actually represent clients that were willing to do something different. Um, and that, that applies to using my experience in, in Hispanic media, as well as in, in on Capitol Hill and, in, and on campaigns. Um, and so that's, that's, that's kind of how it started. I, I was an entrepreneur out of necessity to make a, a living, and then I got the groove of it. And when I decided that I could actually uh, earn money while doing something that I'm passionate about, and I didn't have to uh, earn a misery in the government while doing it, I figured that win-wins were, were the new way to go for me. And so identifying entrepreneurial opportunities that were, you know, uh, important work for for impactful causes while at the same time being uh, business ventures, that's kind of the sweet spot that, that I've been able to identify and I've been able to continue the work for for immigration, for Puerto Rico, for international affairs that I that I love, but but from a different point of view. While protecting client confidentiality, could you tell us a little bit more about your work on a day to day basis? Sure. So um, I'll, I'll, I can mention clients that that are publicly, you know, I, I'm identified with publicly. Um, a former client, the National Hispanic uh, Caucus of State Legislators. They were one of my clients for several years. I, I still have a great relationship with them, and I was um, basically in charge of doing communications for them. But you know, with small nonprofits, it's all hands on deck. And one of the proudest moments uh, we had was after Hurricane Maria, we took a bipartisan, uh, bi-territorial delegation to Capitol Hill. We had a senator from the Virgin Islands, which was obviously very impacted by Maria and Irma, um, and then a bipartisan delegation from Puerto Rico. Um, new Progressive Party, uh, then uh, Senate Majority Leader Carmelo Rios, and uh, pro-Commonwealth um, Party Senate Minority Leader Eduardo Batia. And we went and met with Chuck Schumer, with Mitch McConnell, and this was a month after Hurricane Maria. And, uh, you know, all of our do all of the doors were open for us, and, and we got a chance to get into, um, you know, key decision makers uh, right at the onset of the disaster so that they knew firsthand the uh, all of the suffering that's, that was going on, and more importantly, what public policies needed to be um, needed to be implemented in order to remedy the situation. So I would have to say that that, that advocacy was, you know, when we, we were advocating for a Marshall Plan um, in conjunction with other groups. So 
you know, we were working mostly on immigration issues and, and to take a pause and work on something closer to home, like, like the hurricane was, was very significant. And I'm proud of the work they did and, and that I was able to help them out um, to communicate that work. Uh, right now, um, one of my main clients is a law firm from Mississippi um, who are defending the people of Vieques uh, in a contingency manner. You're a lawyer, so you know that there are a lot of cases with, you know, especially impoverished communities where lawyers basically put in the money and the resources and they don't get a dime unless they win a case. And we're trying to get the U.S. Navy to compensate uh, the people of Vieques uh, for the health damages of all of the toxic uh, chemicals and bombs that, that were used as target practice in that Puerto Rican island. So that's something that uh, where we're trying to get a bill through Congress. It's a bipartisan bill. It's one of the few instances where we have Republican Jennifer Gonzalez, who represents the island as the non-voting delegate, and Democrat Nidia Velasquez, um, who don't usually agree, but they're working together on this. So bipartisanship isn't dead. Um, and, and we're working on projects that might not grab all the headlines, but that could, if, uh, you know, if we succeed, impact uh, several thousand people in a very significant way. So, you know, I used to be very enamored of the big fight, Social Security, Iraq, and now Afghanistan and all of that. And I, I'm still very interested, but sometimes it's a small and narrower wins that can create larger victories. And, and that's the type of impact work that, that I like to do. And again, um, just having some money to, to travel and see my family and to talk politics on the networks is also something that, that I find uh, entertaining, but also useful to educate uh, communities out there about how they can get involved because sometimes it seems so daunting and general, oh, we need to get involved, but what does that actually mean? How do I write a letter to my member of Congress? Why should I ask for a meeting? What should I ask for? How should I do it? That's another thing that I do for a lot of clients out there to basically train them on how to be better act activists. Um, so that, that's why I enjoy the work that I do, even though I never thought I'd be in the private sector. It's almost been seven years now since I'd have founded and developed FDJ Solutions. We have a great team. We have grant writers, we have government relations associates, um, and we partner up with other firms for larger projects, which is also the nimble part of, of, the, of the work, right? So I have my own direct clients, but I've also been hired by larger firms um, for specialty projects, um, either on policy or, or on, a, on a strategy that, that I can advise them on. So, you know, I used to think, well, I'm gonna be a communications consultant or I'm going to be a lobbyist. But if you don't do a little bit of everything, then I don't think you can be successful, right? If you don't know who on the Hill deals with an issue or what reporter is covering it and what the outside group that needs to do the agitation, if you don't combine all of those three, I don't think you can run a, a successful campaign for any client uh, or, or rather for any political objective that anybody has, um, whether it's a private company, whether it's uh, a political party or candidate or just an advocacy group, uh, successful advocacy has to be strategic and and that's what we try to do with our clients fantastic thank you thank you for that it's unfortunate that we 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 don't have more time but before we sign off any recommendations for our audience look in the end of the day and again thank you i'm honored to be with you not just because you're a dear friend but i respect your work and uh and i'm glad that, that we can share this with a wider audience i you know in the end of the day and this might not be a surprise to a lot of people it's all about relationships, but managing them in a strategic and principled way. People don't like to be used. They don't like to be taken advantage of, um, but people like to, to be able to, to participate in, uh, in, in something that's larger than themselves. So that might sound contradictory, but it's all about knowing how to manage relationships, but doing it in a way that 
is meaningful and, and can actually uh, reach common goals. And, and the reason I mention that is because for all of the partisanship, and obviously I'm a partisan Democrat, I don't hide it, I talk about it in the media all day, um, but in the last couple of years I've learned and it's not that you don't know it philosophically in your head, but in practice, the importance of reaching out to the other side. I couldn't have gotten uh, this far with, with with many of the projects that that I uh, that I work on if I didn't maintain good relationships with the Republicans and and if I had if I didn't have um, you know solid friends on the other side. And then I made it a point, especially with the polarization um, and and the the autocratic uh, fanaticism that that uh, is creeping back in this country. It's the best time in the world to start identifying um, what you have in common with someone from what you perceive to be the other side and, and to work in collaboration. It, it, I think it's now more important than ever. And, and, and it's not a zero-sum game. Um, I think it's not an issue of principle versus selling out. I, I, I think we need to revive uh, the Ted Kennedy model. I think that nobody would argue that he wasn't the liberal lion of the Senate, but nobody could argue that he didn't get things done. Um, and there are certain things like the projects that I mentioned that are getting done um, below the radar. And I think that it's up to us as individuals to start identifying how can we collaborate with folks on the other side? Because in the end of the day, this whole the country is divided in half and we're tearing each other apart. It's unsustainable and frankly, isn't beneficial for other sides. And it's not naive because I'm doing it every day. And I talk to Republicans, not just out of sport and to believe that I'm better because I have bipartisan friends, but frankly, you can't get anything done in this town in DC without it. And, and that's something that people need to relearn, um, but not just again in a philosophical way, but, uh, but in a very practical and granular uh, level. And uh, I think that it's not idealism, it's just a very, um, you know, we, we have to switch our, our gears because otherwise we're gonna tear each other apart. And the sad thing is we're not gonna get anything done. We did get a bipartisan infrastructure bill done. There are a lot of things flying below the radar, like I said, that are getting done in collaborative ways. And, and I think that the best thing we could do um, you know, to have a more sane and healthy world is to reach out to other people that you don't agree with and, and see how you can work together. It's, an, it's not a kumbaya thing, it's a strategic move. And, and I think we should all embrace it, whether you're in politics or not. Because um, civil wars start when you see your neighbor as the other and uh, we can't fall into that trap. Absolutely, and I, I endorse your thoughts. My specific recommendation for for this week is a British show called uh, Spitting Image. It's a political satire show. There's a lot more American content. It's really fun. Give it a, give it a try. So Spitting Image. It's available on YouTube. It's 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 free. For you, I think you'll particularly appreciate their takes on Trump. Fede, it's been a it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed our our conversation and. We look forward to having you back on in the in the not so distant future to kind of follow up on some of these uh, topics we talked about. It's been my pleasure. It would be my pleasure, and, and thank you for bringing me on and, and for the work that you do. And uh, you know, my uh, my last piece of advice is when you read the op-ed pages, um, the op-eds I like the most are the ones who challenge my own preconceived notions and or the counter narrative. Those are the ones that are more interesting. And if we read more of those, then maybe we can achieve what we, were, what we were talking about earlier. So again, thank you so much for the opportunity, Fred. It was a pleasure. We'll do, I'll do a real one because I think I went too fast on that. I want to pause a bit between my words. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. 
This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams. Music.